Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice as it helps to grow the show and to find a new audience. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives and the passion of bartending. This week we put together a collection of clips from the last year where our guests give advice, tell some funny stories and offer a perspective on bartending that we think any up and coming bartenders should hear. We have advice and stories on opening bars, choosing a name for your bar, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, preventing burnout, knowing when to leave a bar and moving to a management position as well as many others. Don't forget that full versions of every interview are available on all major streaming platforms such as YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. With this podcast we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back, enjoy and we wish you a happy 2020 from the Unjigger team. First up we have Jesse Vida giving advice on cocktail menus and the transition to management. Do you think that, generally speaking, the trend with cocktail menus is to reduce the number of cocktails as much as possible? I mean, I think there's a balance to it. You know, in my mind, I think like the money spots right around 20 or so. Uh-huh. When I when I first, a little funny story for you. When I first started training at Dead Rabbit, it was such an intimidating place to train at because, you know, obviously it, it had such a reputation at that time. And uh, we had 78 cocktails on the menu. Yeah, the menu is huge. 78 yeah. cocktails. Like, what the hell? <laughs> And uh, I was training and I was probably like, I wasn't even two weeks in, you know, as these things go, like something happened and like someone couldn't make it to their shift. So they're like, all right, like you got to bartend. It's Saturday night. I think I had memorized at that point about 12 <laughs> of the 78 cocktails. And of course, like Sean, one of the owners, like ends up just like sitting in front of me with some VIP guests. And I'm just, just like <laughs> sweat is just dripping down my face, like all into my suspenders and my, my red collared shirt. Um, and yeah, I'm just like. I'm getting these dockets or tickets with, you know, eight cocktails on them. And I'm like, I've never seen I don't know what any of these are. Like, maybe I tasted one was, but, oh, man, it was brutal. I was definitely putting out drinks. Like, it was like 25 minutes to get, like, co- no way. oh, for sure, man. Like, you know, the server would put in the ticket. I was just like, bring them another welcome punch. <laughs> Please, <laughs> they're, help they're, me. <laughs> they ain't getting these for a while. I'm like, you know, I'm like, okay, first drink. Type it in. All right. Two dashes absent. <laughs> Oh, uh, dude. So if you opened your own bar, then 20 drinks, that's what you think it's a sweet spot. Yeah, roughly, give or take. I mean, I think I think with 20 drinks, you can hit on just about everything. Like maybe you won't have multiple cocktails for someone who likes a Negroni, but you'll have at least one cocktail for someone who likes a Negroni. And then like, you know, that's where classics come into play. And I mean, mm. I think for any bartender who's been bartending for a while, you know, the old like get off my lawn kind of old man thing that bartenders used to do to me when i was young but it's like you do gotta know your classics you know and like if someone comes in let's see you should if there's something not on the menu that you think someone like a style that someone might want like you need to have a couple of classics in your mind because it's gonna come up you know yeah i think it's a huge difference because nowadays a lot of people are trying to compare bars to restaurants but mm-hmm. when you design a food menu you are limited to what you actually have yeah totally with, with bars you can make a huge number of cocktails with just a limited amount of ingredients right? yeah very true so how was it for you to step into management for Black Day? Because you said it was your first management gig, mm-hmm. right? It was a huge gig. So, yeah, yeah, totally. It was. It was. But, you know, that that's where it paid off to take my time, right? Uh-huh. Because by the time I was stepping into management at Blacktail, I was like, okay, I, of course, like, there's always more things to learn no matter what you do. But I had reached a point in bartending where I was like, I got this. Like, I am a really good bartender at a really good cocktail bar. I could step into about any bar and like confidently and competently work like i felt like at that point i was like this part is as mastered as i felt like it needed to be to take the next step i feel like if i hadn't gotten to that point if i had accepted the role at black till in some hypothetical world two years sooner i would have crashed and burned i would not have been able to handle it i wouldn't have had the confidence to like lead a training for a team and to like you know put together a menu and feel like all right these drinks are good you know um yeah i mean it was it was a major challenge though and i think What's always going to be the most challenging part of managing is managing the people, right? Yes. Yeah. I think people see like the posters for the guest shifts or the awards and this or that. And it's like anything, you know, like that's just like 5% of it. I mean, really like the, the grind is what you're really working with every day as a manager. 
And, you know, through that, through my experience managing there, like I definitely made some mistakes. I mean, nothing I'd say I wish I could take back because they made me, you know, ready to take the position at Atlas in the sense where like, uh, <laughs> I should have taken some friends, some advice. Uh, hiring friends is always a little tricky. I probably I hired a couple of people who they were great for Blacktail, but um, I probably was a little bit too close and friendly with them to be their boss. You know what I mean? Um, so that can cause like a little bit of strife. But yeah, I mean, just learning how to, you know, some people need to kick in the ass. Some people need a hug. Like you just got to kind of figure out how everyone operates. You have to figure out how to motivate different people. You have to have the consistency in the culture of like what's okay, what's not okay. What are the steps to move forward here? You know, you got to control people's frustrations, expectations. You Kind of like, you know, you become a parent and it's like you want to yeah. give, it's like you want to give all your kids the world, right? Like you, you wish, you wish that every bartender on your team could like, get to go on every amazing trip and like win every competition and, and, you know, just be awesome. But you know, you gotta, you have to regulate expectations. You have to, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a learning lesson in, in so many ways in that sense. But I would say that that was, and still continues to be the most challenging part of management. Next we have Declan McGurk talking about empowering your team. Exact same approach to everything. And also everyone says to me that, um, oh, wow, you know, you work at the Savoy. It must be very different to the other places you've worked. No, not at all. They're all exactly the same. Our in, our industry is really simple. Uh, humankind has a this excellent ability at making things more complicated than they should be. But our business is about two things and two things alone, team and guests. Now, coming in as a bar manager, then it's very, very obvious that I've got to do two things. One, I had to present myself well to the guests. And I was really keen, the regulars, the characters, to make sure that I introduced myself and met them. But ultimately, as the manager, I'm more responsible for the team. So the first thing for me was simply getting to know the team on arrival. And uh, uh, from, you know, head bartender Eric, who was someone I did know, but I didn't know so well. And we developed a friendship that became and is still very, very close. Uh, And then to people like yourself and the rest of the team. And uh, whenever a manager's coming in, there's probably going to be some changes. But I also think a big bit of advice for anyone, if you're going into an environment that you need to just go in and meet people first. So I had no set plan. Uh, My first plan was to come in and get to know everyone first, get to know what motivates them, get to know if there were any any issues. Um, One thing I did pick up on early doors uh, with the American bar was um, people um, felt that they would like to contribute a bit more to the idea of cocktail menus and the making of the drinks. And if we look now, I've been here six and a half years and we're about to launch a menu in the Bowfoot Bar whereby every single team member who works in the Bowfoot Bar has contributed a cocktail to that menu, including Sophie, who's one of our hosts who hasn't even been bar trained yet. But you don't need to be bar trained to contribute a cocktail because we can work with you on the principles of balancing the drink. We've got enough people there. I'm a big believer that it's about empowering the team and making, if you're going to sell cocktails, if you're going to sell drinks, I want the team to feel a part of that and a genuine part of owning that. So talking about uh, independent bar companies, could you share with us some of the funny stories you have to deal with? Because like when you are in an independent bar, it's not like in a hotel or like where you have your security department or whoever. Yeah, like uh, I don't think I've opened a bar and remembered to order straws. So that's the greatest thing about sustainability is that we don't use straws anymore. And it means you don't forget to order them for the opening. Uh, Openings are just awesome. I remember we're opening a bar in Harrogate called Banyan. And Harrogate's a great town. It's a very affluent town in the north of England. Um, and they're really nice people there as well. And we're opening Banyan and we thought we're, we're a load of Leeds guys in this town. We need to get to know them. So we decided to have a big night out, but then we realized we've got no way of getting home. So we had a van. So we all slept in the van. There were three of us and we slept in the van overnight. It started to get freezing. So we turned the engine on to keep the, the heating on. Anyway, the next morning we of course needed the toilet. So a bit like the A-team, kicked the double doors open, started having a wee out the back of it. Uh, looked up and then saw the builders were there waiting for us to let them in. <laughs> Next, we have Steve Schneider talking about having faith in your project as well as handling guests. So I, I knew it was a big leap of faith I had to take, but I put every last dime I had uh, into employees only. I was an investor as well here in Singapore. I, I gave everything here. I left my, left my life behind. Uh, I landed. I had to train everybody, you know, alone. Um, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But 
I finally achieved what I always wanted to do. I'm, I'm now a partner and a bar owner. And we, we did damn well over here at Employees Only Singapore. Got the same core team that when we started. Um, I was able to reinvest that money, you know, five times over. And uh, now I have a partnership or a, a little bit of stake in seven different places. So it took me a while. It took me about 16 years, but uh, I got it all. You got uh, that in the end. Yeah, I, I achieved exactly what I, what I needed to achieve. So that's the, that's the long story, semi-long, but also short. You know, a lot of things happened in between there, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of failures, a lot of mistakes. But, um, you know, just had to keep, keep your head up and keep moving. Yeah. Did you find it difficult to switch from uh, bartending to management? And what were the main challenges you had? Uh, not much. Uh, I mean, certain Was it quite organic for you? Yes. I mean, the, the same people that, you know, that hired me put me up for it. They, they believed in me. And, you know, it was just the next logical step for me. Bar back, bartender, bar manager, bar owner, you know. It's you got to take these steps. You got to know, you know, you got to know it. You got to do it. So the good news is that is we're super busy, right? So it's not like I was taking over a failing bar or anything. So I, the, I had an advantage in that point where it's like, okay, let's just take our, our numbers and we'll see if I can make them better, mm-hmm. you know? So they weren't bad before, but I just took that as, as a new challenge, a new opportunity to learn stuff. Uh, you're a movie star. Would you like to talk to us about that? Well, yeah, this is uh, Hey Bartender was the first documentary of its kind. You know, it focused on the resurgence of the cocktail in New York City and the people behind it. Uh, it was directed by a guy named Doug Tarola, who's become a dear friend. And um, that was a trip, bro. It was like, uh, I was very lucky to be a part of that project. I was one of the stars of this documentary, and it was a long time ago. My first interview was in 2009 for Hey Bartender. And it seems like a, another, another, another lifetime ago. 10 years ago, man. Yes, it was. My very first interview. So this is how it happened. Doug... Um, He makes documentaries for a living. He's a filmmaker. That's what he does. Uh-huh. And one of his favorite bars in New York City closed, so he was looking for bars to go to. So his mother, she used to cut out newspaper clippings and stuff and like like you know, like give it to him, you know, about the, bars. About just whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she uh, so whatever happened as one thing led to another and she cut out a little newspaper clipping of employees only or something and she's like you should go check this place out. And he had never been into any kind of cocktail joint before. And this is 2009. There was probably, I don't know, five or six cocktail bars, you know, in New York City. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, there's more than five or six. But, you know, I could probably count the bars on, on, on my fingers, uh-huh. you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of markets around the world didn't even have, they couldn't, nobody knew what a Negroni was, you know. It was still very, very young, even 10 years ago. So this guy walks in, right? I remember it was a Tuesday night. I was working with Bratza. We were dancing, doing our thing, you know, uh, sharing one ice well. Cranking out service, music was right, you know, the lighting was right. I was working service bar as an apprentice, and this guy walks in through the curtain. You know, like employees only, you walk in, there's a psychic, and then you go past the psychic through the curtain, and that's what the bustling bar is, right? And, you know, I'm a firm, my thing when I bartend is always like, you always got to keep your head up. You know, when you're shaking, don't look out in the space, you know, look up, look at your guests, see what you got to do next, make a cue in your head, always constantly thinking, constantly doing stuff, you know? So I'm shaking drinks, and this guy walks in, and he's got the deer in the headlights look, man. He's like, what the fuck? Where the fuck am I? <laughs> right? What the hell just happened to me? You know? And it wasn't many, like, speakeasy-style bars, like, at this point either. So the whole experience, right, I could just tell that, that he was lost. So I had, I had a decision to make, right? Do I look at Bratza? Do I go, look at this fucking guy. <laughs> he's lost, you know, and make fun of him and just let him walk out? Or do I, uh, do I let him know there's a seat opening up, which is what was happening right in front of me? So... I did both, right? <laughs> <laughs> I told Bradson, look at this fucking guy, he's yeah, lost. Yeah, yeah. So, so then I was like, hey, bro, like, you know, I, I kind of like gave him a little nod and I was like, uh, you know, gave him a nod to where the bar was going to open. So he kind of sits, he's, you know, he sits down, give him a menu. I'm still shaking drinks, you know, both hands. You know, he got dinner, he, he likes to drink tequila, you know, gave him some tequila. And whatever, just, just another guest, bro. Um, he paid the check. He comes back. He's like, hey, man, uh, I make documentaries. I've never seen anything like this. Could I interview you, you know? And I was like, yeah, whatever, dude. Okay, sure. You know, in New York City, there's fucking artists all the time that, you know, yeah, talk shit yeah, and, you know, yeah. nothing happens. <laughs> so I say, whatever, dude. He comes back. 
we have an interview. You know, it's supposed to be 15 minutes long. It ends up being like an hour long. And I'm just shooting the shit, talking about all all the uh, the philosophy behind how I feel behind the bar and all the stuff I'm learning, you know, at Employees Only as an apprentice looking to become bartender. Mm-hmm. And so, some of that interview was actually in the film. He was like, this is it. Um, so we opened our doors for him, and uh, he followed us. He followed the industry around for, you know, three or four years. He followed the industry, and it so happened to coincide with me being promoted to principal bartender and also us winning the the Spirited Award for mm-hmm. World's Best Cocktail Bar, which was quite unique at the time because the cocktail scene was very serious back then. In a way, it had to get that serious. It had to be like, all right, this is how a drink is supposed to be made. You know, somebody, some nerds had to put their foot down first. And then we, the fun bar, actually won the big award, you know? The ones with the, with the, with the bartenders, with the fun bartenders, you know, with the, with the energy, with the, with the loud music, with the standing room only. Like, we won the big award, and it was, a, it was quite a, a unique thing, and it was a shocker for us, and it was a, a, a goldmine for Doug. Doug was, like, the guy who made the hey bartender. He was, like, you know, <laughs> like, he just, yeah. So we introduced him to Dale DeGroff, and then he, and then he just met people throughout the industry. And several years later, I'm on the red carpet in Hollywood, bro. And like, <laughs> it's like, I kind of Cosmo Kramered my way into that. I don't know how it happened. You know, I just uh, gave the guy the time of day and uh, got lucky. I've, I've fucked up several. Like, speaking of like, you know, learning from your mistakes. I've learned so much at that place of what, not, what type of bartender I don't want to be. Oh, hold on. This is funny, man. Real quick. I got to tell this one. Oh, okay. So I'm at the bar. I'm chewing tobacco. I'm, you know, 20 years old or some shit. And uh, we had a live band every night, but early the band didn't come on, dead bar. And we got a, this, this guy comes in, right? Italian guy. He sits at the bar, and uh, there was nobody else in the fucking place, right? What do you want? He's like, uh, uh, martini. I'm like, what kind? He's like, uh, martini. I'm like, what kind of martini you want, bro? And he looks at me like I'm some kind of dumbass, and he goes, uh, I want martini. You know, mouth it to me. Uh-huh. So I just got frustrated. You know, I had no patience for this shit. I was a Marine with tons of uh, testosterone. So I called the uh, Tunisian doorman who used to like sit in the stool at the end and just play um, Sudoku, you know, okay. like the little books, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. It's like, come on over here, you know? And he puts the book down. He's like, what's up? I'm like, this guy keeps fucking with me, man. Get him out of here, you know? <laughs> so he grabs the guy by the throat, right? He drags the guy out, right? And the guy's like, oh, you know, he's getting dragged out. His feet are like, he's not like moving backwards. His feet are still and they're like kipping up against the ground, you know. And I was just like, I gave him just like a little salute, like, see you later, pal. You know, his hand was on the door, like he was trying to keep himself in. And one finger at a time was slowly like you see in the cartoon. And then he was gone. And then his cries for martini got lower and lower and lower. And about six or seven years later, I find out that uh, martini means uh, vermouth on the rocks. Yeah, exactly. yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, it turns out uh, in, the, in this industry, we call that, uh, oops, you know, my bad. Huh? I screwed that up. That, that's called a mistake on, on my part as a young bartender. Can you this poor guy, man? Yeah, yeah. I bet, I bet he saw, I, when, when Hey Bartender got on Netflix, I bet he was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Doesn't even know Martini is on the movie. <laughs> crazy stuff, man. So yeah, that that was my my uh, that was uh, one instance. Uh, when you say, do you regret anything as a young bartender? That's I regret. Enough, that's yeah. one of them. Next, we have Natalie Lau talking about pushing yourself and really achieving. How long did it take you to get a job? Uh, two weeks, luckily enough. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And, uh, what did you end up doing? I was uh, working in the Savoy Hotel and I split myself into two bars, Buffer Bar and the American Bar. That's a very challenging position, right? It is challenging, but but it is also what I wanted to because I have only two years. I, it's so intense. I really want to, you know, push myself harder. So when they were offering me like, oh, you know what, you will be splitting in two bars. Would you mind? Because they might really concern that some people would only want to work in one bar. And I was like super happy. I was like, well, you know, I'm so happy that I have two different experiences, like double my colleagues. And then, you know, that's like learning process will be double in two years. And that's, I was super happy that they offered me that. You probably worked when the Beaufort bar was at its peak, more or less, right? Because you worked on the the pop-up menu, have you? Yes, I did work for, I think, half a year for the pop-up menu. And And then then you switched to the tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also created the tunnel book menu. 
working in a, in a hospitality is also you don't only uh, be good to customer, you also be good with your your colleagues, right? So the interaction or communication during service, if you get frustrated, you also spread that message so that people can bring you up. Or if you're happy, you can cheat someone else, right? So so that is the thing. It's in a small room in Beaufort Bar, happy team, super, super happy and easily to, you know, cover everyone. In American Bar, uh, they also happy team, but then it's too, during service, the tension is easily, you know, got separated. Yeah. While um, customer expect that you have this knowledge, as well as the customer could be smarter than you on cocktail or like well knowledge than you. Um, not only the knowledge, but also the English barrier, because the strong accent as well is also kind of like quite tough for me to talk to the customer to understand what they said, uh, engaging with them, the how to start a conversation with customer somehow. Um, it is not my first language, and then it's just hard for me to talk with them in what whatever they want to talk to. Did you have any secret or trick you want to share about how you managed to overcome this barrier? Like it wasn't more like just do it and get on with it. No, it's not. It's never only that you work 10 hours and then you work hard and 10, 10 hours can make you become a better person. I push myself quite hard that I, I try to, uh, listen to like BBC, that kind of like news channel. It's so tough. I give up. But then, you know, in online, that's quite a lot of like one minute English lesson. So I, every day I at least watch five minutes. What on YouTube? On YouTube, yeah, there is like they would, but instance, like in Hong Kong style that they teach you in English, ah. the British way. So you read it every day. That's the only one thing. But then you read newspaper, you see what is the theater going in London because you know people love theater. And then I just don't know what it is. You just research everything. Classic cocktail, you just you know Savoy cocktail book. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah that you know helps, you just yeah. need that book and flip it every day, and then uh, you know and. I mean, uh, I have to uh, travel like around like half an hour to one hour and uh, nice time as well. So then in the night bus, I always bring a book or whatever materials that I want to learn. I bring it with me. I read, I read, I read. Next, we have Jim Mian talking about bar etiquette and building a bar community. Did you pick up any clues from Milk and Honey and transfer them into PDT when you opened Very it? much so. PDT, I never worked for Sasha and... While I knew Sasha and while Sasha knew me and we, we chatted from time to time, I will, I will not, I would never say that Sasha and I were close, but I think what really sort of inspired me about Milk and Honey was, um, I mean, there were, everything inspired me about Milk and Honey, but the, the things that I brought into PDT was first and foremost, the quote unquote rules and uh, Milk and Honey had what were called the rules that were posted in the bathroom and the rules were were everything from things like you know sort of somewhat colloquial things like no star fucking which had to do with i think in the early days of milk and honey celebrities would come in and people would sort of ogle them or want to go over and talk to them but i think the things that were really big for me was that he he literally had written rules in the bathroom that said that men should take their hats off when they walked in and that men should not approach women at the at the bars and 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 if and if uh a man would like to speak to a woman the woman would have to oblige and and there were there there was a rule in particular that was something along the lines of that you know you should never invite anyone to milk and honey that you would not invite to your own home and even down to like how you should proceed when you leave the bar you know leaving it quietly so as to not disrupt the neighbors and it's hard to imagine right now but before Tinder and all the dating apps changed the way that humans mate, most mating went on in bars and restaurants. Uh, and certainly it went on in churches and gyms and, you know, in business outings. But bars were, were the, you know, ground zero of mating. And it was, a, it was a ugly business at that time. You know, it was the amount of time as a bartender you spent trying to either facilitate people meeting or trying to prevent people from meeting was a huge part of your job in addition to changing ashtrays and a whole bunch of other undesirable aspects about bartending. And what I loved about Milk and Honey was that it was very much a sanctuary for women and for also for the men who were there with women who didn't want to fend off uh, would-be suitors after you went to the bathroom. But it was a very, I love the ethos and the sort of, sort of the how socially disruptive Milk and Honey was. And so when I opened PDT, 
I didn't open with rules because I was very aware of the fact that in New York, you can't tell a New Yorker what to do, just like you probably couldn't tell a Londoner or even a Singaporean what to do. So I called it etiquette. And I didn't use Sasha's rules. I I, I just talked about this idea of etiquette. And, And I think that as I look back into the legacy of milk and honey, certainly these great drinks and the hand carved ice and the level of professionalism of his bartenders is something that we'll all remember. But I can't stress how socially disruptive this place was for for bars and bartenders, and and in my opinion, how civilized it was. How do you think guest bartending shifts have changed uh, throughout the years? You mentioned that you were hosting some of the time, but now do you see them as a necessity for uh, a successful business? Um, I would say for me, no. I mean, I think that the... One of the reasons why we hosted those shifts in the beginning is merely because the cocktail world was so small back then. And and so it was and it wasn't something like PDT doesn't have social media. And so the guest bartending shifts really weren't about promotion. They were about sharing knowledge. And I think that that I think sharing knowledge was something that was very important back then. And I think it remains really important now. So. When I say that I don't think guest bartending shifts are necessary, I'm not saying I don't think sharing knowledge is necessary. I, I, I think I'm just saying that guest bar shifts done properly, I think, can be great. Um, but guest bar shifts, if everyone doesn't understand why you're doing them, can be a problem. And I think the thing that I realized from that travel and leisure feature on us was that in some ways, when you have a guest bartender in your bar, the message you're sending to your consumers and to your staff is, hey, come tonight. There's someone who's great, who is so good that we're going to tell John or Jack or Jane to take the night off so they can work the station. And I think for me, I had a belief at a certain point where I didn't want someone coming in to distract from how good my own staff was. That being said, the early guest bar shifts that we hosted were helped us create a community that was beyond just our neighborhood or our city and created an international community. And I think for myself, my own personal learning, you know, I, I'll never forget having Marion Beck behind the bar, having, you know, Wayno San behind the bar and just watching what they did behind my own bar. One, one story I told my staff before I left Hong Kong was one night we had Charles Vaxenat bartending at PDT and Charles was the head bartender, I believe, at the Lunsdale. And Nick brought him over to open Hicks. And and he was the head bartender at Hicks when Nick opened that. And the program at the Lunsdale and the program at Hicks were revolutionary in London because Nick's view has always been that the cocktail is is actually historically comes from London, not from New York. And, And Nick has always been frustrated with the way cocktail history has always been slanted towards American bartenders as opposed to the great British bartenders and, and innovators like Dick Bradsell and others. And so Charles, even though he was a, a giant French bartender, was part of the like DNA of London cocktail bartending and a friend. And I'll never forget one night when he was working, it was his first guest bar shift. I think he worked probably four or five shifts over a few years. And Charles is probably like six, four or five. He's a really tall guy. But the door at PDT does not face the bar. And it's probably about 15 or 20 feet away from where the point bartender stands. So it's not close. And that night, when a guest would walk through the door and be greeted right away by our host, as soon as they turned around and faced the bar, Charles would look up and smile and say, good evening, and welcome them. And it blew my mind, A, that this 15-foot you know, sort of distance meant nothing to Charles, and B, that that as a bartender who wasn't even on my team, he felt that it was his, it was comfortable and natural and proper for him to welcome every guest that walked through our door, even from the bar. And it was something I think that had I never seen Charles Vexen at 10 bar that way at PDT, I don't think I ever would have realized that you could do that. What I do find is when I hire new people, I always ask them, you know, I've been here for so long that I can't see this place the way you can see this place. You can see this place with fresh eyes with for the first time. And you're going to be able to see things that we do and things that we don't do. And if you see something you think we can do better, if you see something that I'm missing, please bring it to my attention. And I think that's 
where guest bartenders can really sort of open your eyes to the potential and possibilities of your own bar. Next, we have VJ chatting to us about having confidence in your product and how to think about your drinks. What did you do to bridge the gap in between uh, what you guys were doing and the consumer level? Like, do you have any trick or anything mm. like that that you did? I think, I mean, I can't answer for, for Luke and Aki, uh, but having worked with them, I think th um, they're, they're the kind of characters is like, okay, this is what we're doing. And full stop. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't think we did anything to, to bridge the gap. And it was like, okay, we're we're different. Don't forget that, and just keep pushing along that line. And we wait for people to turn to up. catch up. And products good, so be be confident. That's crazy, though. Eh? Yeah. Balls of steel to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was nice to see a transition in the consumers as well, because even buttons will come in. And back then, this was like five years ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Operation Dagger. Back then, like bartenders would come in and that was a period where like brands were like like a thing. There was brands, t-shirts, there was brand caps, there was bartenders would be tattooing like pineapples on their <laughs> on their forearm. Sick, yeah. um, you know, for an Abranca coins. So that was the period where like like a loyalty to a brand was was a huge thing and we were doing the exact opposite. So bartenders would come in and they're like, you know what? Uh, the bar's okay, but I still like my brands. I like my to see Fernet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, eventually, like we we had like Fernabranca and all in the bar, and I think they were even trying to create their own Fernabranca at that time. I'm not sure if they they ever ever got to it, but you know, it's just the idea. It was just the idea that you know, without a brand, without like that sort of idea that someone's put into you, how would you look at flavors in a neutral way if everything sort of looked the same? You know, if there wasn't a spirit category in your drink description and you just had to sort of experience the drink by itself, you know, that was that was the whole idea, I guess. When uh, did you start uh, pondering the idea of opening your own bar? Um, I think when I was back in, in school, me and my friends, you know, when we were working in clubs and stuff, we always wanted our own business. I think of, of a group of us, you know, back in school, we always wanted our own business and we tried a few things, you know, the classic t-shirt business didn't work out. <laughs> uh, but it was always on the back of my mind, you know, like I've always wanted to have my own business and I think I, it grew a little bit more uh, during my time when I was working at Dagger during that era when I was hitting about 26. Yeah, that was that was when it started to really come down to me like, you know, I I want to start my own thing. And what steps did you take in order for you to open your own bar? Because it's the, especially the first is not an easy task. Yeah, so like um, after finishing off at Dagger, you know, we we left on a good note and I was pretty much free again, not sure what to do. So I, I had this idea that I wanted to open my own bar, but I was, I was quite nervous about it. You know, I felt like I wasn't ready. So I had a bit of a pocket of time and I looked through all the bars in the world and I was like, okay, so I've worked at, so many different styles of bars, you know, and if I could work in one more bar in the world, like, where would it be? And I looked at it and I said, okay, you know, I really like the idea of like what the guys at White Lion are doing, you know. So I got a friend that connected me to Ian Griffiths and yeah. then he replied like, oh, if you want to come for a star J, like, yeah, man, let's, let's make it work. I'm like, okay. So I took my bags, went to London again, and then I spent uh, some time with the guys in White Lion Obviously, uh, Ryan was there, and uh, obviously I worked with guys over there like Ellie, Kelsey, and Maya, and Robin, and those guys, and that was that was really cool. How did that change the way you think about drinks? Um, there was there was a lot of similarity, you know, in the way that I was already thinking about drinks, but there was also a lot of things that I learned, you know, like all all the little stuff that they had and. I always tell the young bartenders this, right? I always went into White Line and I was like, okay, we're going to see the best gadgets, everything. I'm going to use everything. And then we went to the basement for prep and all they had was uh, a sous vide and an induction cooker. That's it. That's it. And some of the craziest drinks I've had and prepped and tried came from, came from that basement. And it all goes down to like, you know the thought process and obviously like how you think about drinks you can you can it, it's the most powerful thing 
and I was I was just like mind blown like with the induction and a, and a sous vide what you could do. Now we have Giorgio talking to us about cocktail presentation to guests. We always try to make it bespoke. We always try to make it unique in terms of the way we we talk to people, what we say, and we do the, this we ping pong technique. You know, like you see they have shopping bags, so you ask about the, the shopping. You just ask maybe how they feel or why they're visiting or where they're from, and. It's not something new in hospitality to connect with people, but as a bartender, you don't get to travel with the trolley around the room and speak to each and every guest. That's, I think, the main difference. Where you blend your technique, your knowledge, together with these hospitality skills, creating a conversation that is comfortable for both of us. We're not making a lesson, we're not making a masterclass. We just make this martini to make the guest feel the protagonist and to not make him or her feel like they are attending a bartending lessons. Because I believe that when you talk too technically about cocktail, for instance, and your guest doesn't understand or doesn't know, feel uncomfortable, or doesn't enjoy as much, so the conversation doesn't grow and is not is one side conversation. It's just, again, it's a lecture. It's a Monologue. As a class, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't flow, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when the guest, like, if you let a guest smell lavender bitter, uh, ah, no, lavender is, is a popular uh, and common flavor, so they you might feel at home somehow. It might feel in, um, in a very uh, comfortable zone. Now we have Luke Weirty talking about having a specific time to be creative. Talking about the menu operation, like, how did you drive uh, creativity? Um, so it's one thing that we've we've done since we opened. We have for the staff uh, one day a week where we have a, a creative session. So it's basically a dedicated uh, two hours before we open the bar that the guys can focus on anything they want. Um, if they want to sit down and read a book, they can. If they want to work on a drink that they've been working on, that's the time to do it. Um, and that, for me, is something that I'll carry on to Birdie in Melbourne. Um, it was always really important for me as a bartender when I was learning was having a dedicated time to focus on something because otherwise, when do you find time? And it, and quite often, it, it, it just is that, you know, whenever you find time, so it's like you will make a customer a drink and then you go back to working on your drink, you know. And I found I, I I find that it really it's one of my pet hates when I go to a bar and there's a bartender in the bar not necessarily serving the guests he's working on a new drink he's coming okay, up with yeah. or sometimes it's a drink for a competition or whatever it's like that to me just says you know you're disorganized you know service is for service and then so that's why we set aside this time and we call it a creative session so they're not focusing on anything else it's just one hundred percent creativity i think to be creative you have to also be very organized as well um so yeah there's a set time for prep there's a set time for service and there's a set time for developing new drinks and then outside of that i mean i i don't myself i don't need any real motivation to sort of come up with new things because it's it's just what i love to do so um everyone's different you know some people really need that sort of push and motivation and you know some of my staff would would ask me a lot of questions and want me to be really involved. Other staff, you know, they would just be happy going on their own. Other staff really respond well to maybe going outside of the bar and, you know, seeing a new process like going to visit a bakery or a brewery or, you know, doing off-site things like that. Um, when we've had like people like Matt Wiley and Alex Cretania come down and do like like-minded creatures at the first one that we did in, in Singapore, I know that a lot of the staff really found that like amazing to like work right close with those guys. Um, some people aren't, to be honest, some people aren't interested in creativity. You know, some people are very, you know, linear and want to focus a little bit more on operations and maybe they want to focus more on the, the human side of things and focus on guests and service and that sort of thing. That's great too. You know, it's, I think to be a bartender at the moment, there's a lot of pressure to be like really creative, whereas you don't, have to be you know that shouldn't be your one and only focus you know if you just like serving people you know making people happy you know that's a good enough reason as well absolutely and it's a skill as well mm. 
and and it also goes down to you know num- some people are really good with numbers. I'm I'm terrible with numbers, so <laughs> I love it when someone comes along and says, "Yeah, I just love doing a spreadsheet." You know, they have my yeah, guy. great, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but some people really love it, and you know, I think I always try and encourage. I think creativity goes, you know, it's multifaceted. So you can be creative with a spreadsheet as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I try and encourage whatever avenue they want to be creative with, you know, I'll try and encourage that. But um, one of the things that I've noticed is that if you dedicate time for creativity and putting down ideas on pieces of paper, mm. not 100% of the ideas are uh, relevant or compatible with what you're doing in that specific stage no. of your career. So how do you keep... People motivated because if you get a couple of ideas bounced back every mm. now and then, must must be quite painful for a member of staff to deal with it, right? Yeah, I think my big one is as long as it's recorded, I think there'll always be a time for it, you know. And and I'll often say to people, uh, you know, I've had ideas that I just, you know, I'm working on for maybe two or three years. Um, I record it up until a certain point, and that's the the strength of recording it is you can then put it away. And you can forget about it because it's recorded, mm-hmm. you know, so you can go back to that at any point and you can pick up where you left off. If you don't record it, then you're going to forget it. Well, I know I will, you know, and then all that work that you've already put into it is just lost. So I always encourage people to be like, okay, if you've got five or six ideas, that's great. You know, write them all down, but then choose to work on one until you maybe you'll get to a, a, a fork in the road and you don't really know which way you want to go. Don't rush it. You know, put it away, sleep on it, sleep on it for a week, a month, a year, and then come back to it. And then that way the the ideas and the creativity is going to be a lot more organic rather than forced. I think a lot of the time there's, you know, some people try and force an idea too much and it ends up developing into something that was really far removed from their original idea. Whereas this way it's a lot more sort of not as much pressure. Talking a bit more about uh, human from human perspective, how was it to work with your wife? Because uh, a lot of people hate it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy, easy for me. I can honestly say, um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm worried that she'll hear this. And uh, no, super easy. Uh, Aki and I are very similar, but also very different at the same time. And I think we we know each other's strengths and weaknesses too well. <laughs> I mean. For example, something like this, uh, you know, doing a podcast, that's Aki's worst nightmare. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, So in terms of running a business, you know, uh, not just Operation Dagger, but any brand, a lot of the time, you know, needs a face to the brand and needs someone that, you know, the the spotlight is on. And, you know, Aki was always quite happy for me to be that person. Um, It was one frustration of mine that I always had that she didn't, she never gets the credit that she deserves. And so I'm always, that's why I'm always bringing her up. If I've ever got the opportunity, I'll bring her name up because, yeah, she uh, she's very talented in terms of of everything in terms of food and drink. But, yeah, she just doesn't like the, the spotlight. So it's kind of she shies away from that. But it's perfect for us. So I'll do that sort of thing. And then she'll be, she's happy to be behind the scenes working on, on this, that, the other. Um, because she was very task-minded, that enabled me to spend a little bit more time with staff, spend a, min- a little bit more time with guests. Um, otherwise, I probably, especially in the opening days, I would have been stuck just doing prep and all the operational side of things that you know she took care of. And yeah, it's so it's easy. It it works really well. But I'm under no disillusion that we're very lucky. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, I. A lot, I get asked that question a lot because you know, especially people that are married, they're just like, how do you do that? Like, yeah, I think a lot of people enjoy their job because it's an escape from their wife or something like no, that. No, but yeah, it also gives you <laughs> more things to talk about when you go home, right? And like, yeah. I don't know, it's I find it that if you spend the 24-7 with the same person, after a while you kind of run out of things to talk about, right? I don't know. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, yeah, we'd never really had that. I think the, the key, I think with Aki and I, we... We're comfortable with being, you know, in the same room and being silent. Um, uh-huh. mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's never been an issue. We have the same interests, but at the same time, we've got, you know, enough things on our own that we're interested mm-hmm. in. And, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's 
put it this way, it's never really been something that we've had to really work hard at. It's and then always, it's, if it's natural, it's perfect. Is exactly. It? Yeah. So no, it's it, it it's it's great. And I'm actually really looking forward to when we open in Melbourne. We're actually going to be working together again, which is which is great. Now we have Shane Eaton talking about the differences in between cocktail scenes and the marrying of food and cocktails. You travel a lot and you visit a lot of different cocktail bars. Do you notice a lot of regional differences when it comes to cocktail bars or do you think that the cocktail scene is quite similar across the board? You do see lots of differences, especially when bars are focusing on, let's say, local ingredients. For example, I was recently in Johannesburg. Uh, where they're using a lot of local foraged ingredients. Of course, there's a very famous bar in Singapore as well called Native, doing a similar concept, using ingredients only from Southeast Asia. And so that's one, obviously, you know, first thing you notice, right? Um, But in terms of classics, of course, everyone's making old fashions, Manhattans, martinis around the world. But that's actually the first way you actually see a difference in how, let's say, the local population drinks. For example, here in Singapore, the palate is slightly, prefers slightly sweeter, Whereas in Italy, for example, we're more for drier and more bitter. And so that's a big, it's, a big, it's a big difference you'll notice right away. So if I order a martini in, in Milano or in Rome, I know it'll be quite dry. Whereas here, it'll be you know, a slightly different taste. For the, you know, because, of course, you have to essentially please the local market and the local palate. And so that's one thing I notice right away. Do you think uh, there are other cities that you visited where there's a strong emphasis on uh, separating food and cocktails? Or like, not necessarily as separating, but like giving us as much emphasis as we do in Italy with food. So the food thing is a really interesting one. Um, maybe I'd like to sort of like answer it in a different way. So I mentioned that in Italy, we really don't like to have cocktails with food. Uh, we like to have it before. Maybe, okay, maybe with our Negroni, we'll have some taralli, some olives, something, some potato chips, just to sort of, you know, get excited for, you know, for our, our upcoming dinner where we'll have wine, Okay. Um, but actually I, my mind has sort of been open to the possibility that you can marry food and drink. Uh, the first experience I had of this, uh, was actually in Cape Town, uh, a place called Outrage of Modesty, uh, which has now been now under new ownership, but this is a bar opened by Luke Weirty mm-hmm. is, uh, essentially he opened it after Operation Dagger. And it's the first time I've tried amazing food dishes perfectly paired with cocktails, uh, these innovative cocktails that uh, Luke Weirty uh, developed along with Devin Cross, who was there, uh, also a good buddy of mine. Uh, and that really opened my eyes to the fact that you can really marry, you know, even with local ingredients, so focus just on what you have uh, in the region, have this perfect harmony between the, the drink, the cocktail, and the food. Uh, and this is something there are other, other people, of course, pushing this other than Luke Weirty. Of course, at Tipling Club, uh, Ryan Clift is uh, an innovator as well. Of course, Luke worked there. Um, you have other bars, for example. Another, another guy who's sort of in the same category as Luke, and even more famous, is, is Matt Wiley. I had a great experience at Scout in London. And this is something beautiful. Not everyone can pull it off, um, but it's something that works for sure. Next, we have Martin Hudak on being happy and knowing when to leave a bar. When did you decide to leave the Savoy and why? So 2017 was like a massive roller coaster, top 10 world class, British bartenders, became the world champion in coffee and good spirit. I don't want to wank now over the microphone, but uh, you need to understand the Savoy became the best bar in the world. We became the best bar team in the world. We won the best European bar. Uh, we won, I think, everything we could win. And you know what I realized? I'm not happy. Why? It didn't bring me happiness. You've been waiting for this moment all your life to be there, to win those competitions, you know? And then suddenly you achieve that and it's this kind of like emptiness. I became so empty. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I just, it's so weird. I was expecting I'm going to be happy and over the moon and I'm going to carry that. And then I was like, shit, I achieved all my life dreams and goals and, uh, and that's it. It's over. It's over. And it's kind of like challenge accepted. It's like, what I'm going to do next? And uh, 2017, it was, um, I think, uh, around September, October, November, all those three months after all these competitions, when I realized if I cannot be happy here and I'm already on top of the mountain, like, where I can be happy? What can I do? What's next? You know, like, why I should leave the most iconic bar, you know? I start questioning myself. It's very weird. 
It's very weird because if you are working the best bar in the world, you you are you are you must be very stupid that you leave at the best moment. And I did. I left. So you mu- it must have been quite difficult for you to decide where to go after that. Am I correct? Yeah. Because yeah. you took quite a, a time, a bit of time off. Yeah. So I travel uh, a bit. I went to Australia apparently with Mr. Black at that time. I, we did some guest shift representing Savoy and. Uh, I travel, and then when you travel, you know, you see other countries, you see what other people do, and then you start realizing how bad is your life. Not work life, but like social life. Uh, I remember we came back to London from a sunny Australia, and I was like, oh my God, what are we doing here? Like, why we are here? Is that the moment you realize you wanted to live there? Yeah, exactly. Like, we went to Australia in November, October, November 2017. We went back to London. It was Christmas period at the Savoy, the most craziest period when you shoot yourself in the head and just like, don't be there. And we, I realized it doesn't work anymore. Like, it's not worth it anymore. Like, I don't want to be here. You know, I want to have a better social life. I want to have a better personal life. I just want to be a happy person because I was feeling I'm not happy at the Savoy. And I was so worried that my guests will see this and my colleagues and my bosses. I was like burning out. I was burning out a little bit. And I think I left at the right moment. Matt Wiley is next, talking about opening up in London. What is it that made you think, okay, now I'm ready to open my own place? My, my flatmate at the time, we were thinking, how are we going to make money for someone else? From, rather than making it for someone else, how are we going to make money for ourselves? So we were like, maybe we should start doing some events. And, and stuff like this and at the time I spoke to my old business partner um, Tom and it's like Tom worked for Diageo at the time and I said look me and Brian are thinking about doing events do you think it's a good idea you're in the, you're like connected with the industry and he said like me and Tristan are thinking about doing it as well why don't we have a conversation so we we had a conversation like and we decided maybe we should do something as a four they, they still were working at Diageo so me and Brian would have to front up and be the be the front of it um, we did one event in like six months. I was saying, yeah, and then we had we, an, an opportunity. An opportunity came in for us to to go and do some consultancy in Azerbaijan um, for a chef connection. And we sent them a quote over saying we can come for two weeks. Two of us can come, and we thought we can like. I was still at Zuma at the time. We all had jobs, and we thought we could take two weeks holiday, go and do this job, and it'll maybe be lucrative for us. And we sent them a quote, which is we thought was like over, overinflated. And they said, we'll pay you double, but we need to come for a month. So we had some big decisions to make. And actually, um, me and Tom quit our jobs. I quit Zuma, Tom, Tom quit Diageo. And we, we went for a month. And the other boys came and supported us for weeks. And they took holidays. And that kind of paid for Pearl back in 2010. Tell us more. Which one was your first uh, 100% solo adventure? Talents Mr. Fox. Yeah. Talents Mr. Fox was a pop-up in within one Leicester Street hotel. A friend of mine had the the restaurant, which is a, a Michelin-style restaurant on the ground floor, and they had a bar that no one really knew that it was a bar upstairs. And he's like, do you want to come and do like a month just to, you need something to do, but you want to do something for yourself, um, it'd be a good opportunity for you to, to come and do something, but also be a good opportunity for us to get some attention on the bar. So I... I said, yeah, and then after one month, we took like 10 times more than they'd ever taken in a month before. It's hugely successful. So they asked me to stay. So it's kind of my own venue, but it was very much a pop-up still um, until that was in October we did that. And then at Christmas, I it was the same company who owned Town Hall Hotel where Viajanti was at the time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had a, an ear that Nuno wanted to close Viajante, so I emailed the owner in Singapore and said, I want to take the space where the bar is. And he said, you've got to speak to the general manager, but yeah, no, why not? You've, you've done really well in Leicester Street. And then she said, yeah, cool. One more email back, and he said, you can change anything you want, but you've got to keep the bar where it is. <laughs> okay. Um, he's like, I love that bar. And he, he said, and the other prerequisite is, I've already ordered your tables and chairs. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. From Malaysia, and they're, they're amazing. He sent me pictures, and I was like, yeah, they're amazing. Um, and that was it. What happened after that? So that, Peg and Patriot opened in March, so I had a contract with a the hotel. They were going to fund the refit. Um, I was going to work with the designers, and then I would basically have a three-year contract to operate in, in that space. Um, 
and we were there for about nearly four years. Yeah. So what was the idea behind it and how did you go about making it happen? The idea behind Peg and Patriot was about maybe making accessible drinks, sometimes really weird drinks, but having fun with drinks creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, we we're going to try and make as much of it as ourselves. We we're going to try and keep everything as much in, in-house. We weren't going to have a massive back bar. We we're going to be really concise and considered, but we were just going to make whatever we wanted to whenever we wanted to because we could. And it helped that we were inside a hotel. So you've always got a traffic from guests staying in the hotel. It's a 98-bedroom 98 hotel. So there's always a flow, which if I was in a standalone venue, probably w- would have been a bit more cautious. <laughs> <laughs> but it was in a hotel. We, we had the opportunity to do some cool stuff. I think Peg and Patriot was great. We didn't make any lists. We didn't win. We won a timeout award for most creative bar, but I think it was a really, really good bar to hang out and have fun in. So you mentioned the fact that that was a hotel bar and it helped you somehow with the footfall. Do you think uh, that nowadays opening a standalone venue in uh, London is nearly impossible? Or No, it's not nearly impossible because people are still doing it. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging because it's. I think once, you, once you're a multiple oper- operator, it's quite easy because you have trading history, you have a background, you can go to a landlord and say, this is my background, this is my pack, and and you can see that you're probably going to pay his rent, and ultimately all the landlord cares about is if you're going to pay rent or not, if you're going to pay it on time, and making him believe that you're going to pay his rent, whereas if you're, it's your first venue, if you've worked somewhere else and won awards, it's part of your CV, but to go to a landlord and say, I've got no trading history, take a punt on me, I'm going to pay your rent, is a challenge, and there's so many people that are trying to look at every single site for a landlord he's always going to pick his safe bet he's always going to pick a multiple operator he's going to pay his rent so it, it can be hard that's why generally you see some bars now opening in suburbs slightly out out of the city center because it gives bartenders the opportunity to take a site that might have been closed for a while and the landlord's more likely to take a punt on you now we have mimi schofield talking about relationships with other bartenders you and Joe do not talk about work when you guys are off. Basically, if you look at it, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen it from this perspective, mm. but between you and Joe, you probably are the one couple in the world who has worked on more award-winning bar projects <laughs> ever. And, and that's a fact, you know? I, I, and, yeah. you know? And if you look at yourself and Joe, like, you had... Uh, all sorts of recognitions and awards and like it's incredible like now you made me blush i don't think, think about, about that, that. No, it's crazy <laughs> no and i find it incredible that the two of you never speak about work there must be instances in between the two of you where you end up talking about work we talk about how our day was okay. you know um i did this i did that you know this was a little bit challenging but we never talk about just work and we yeah we don't talk about work like we never go into detail but what exactly in detail i am dealing with uh-huh. it's also would be a breach of confidentiality of course, yeah, no, of course. even though he's my husband i'm simply not going to do that and also he's not going to do that and i don't even want to know you know but we do talk about more like you know this was really hard today you know um I had three or four meetings, which were two hours long each, and, you know, it was a little bit difficult, whatever. Mm-hmm. We talk about it in that sense. But we never go to each other and then break down and analyze no, everything. Because mm-hmm. for us, the first thing, we're a couple, and we love to talk about everything else. Mm-hmm. And we want to be able to hold a conversation, not just about work. Because work is not everything. I don't want to be defined just by my work. Of course. Like, Joe is so much more than just bartender or bartender of the year. And he is a very smart man and incredibly inspirational. And I'm so proud, you know, to, to call him my husband. And I like to think I'm much more just associated just to be a bartender. Yeah, defined by, defined yeah. by that. Yeah, so I think for that reason, we don't really talk much about work. Now we have Holly Graham talking about women and expectations for women in the bar industry. Just last week in one of my guest shifts, I had a guy tell me that I'm a woman, so he can bartend better than me. 
Um, which might be true because I'm still learning, but I was like, you know, that's not how you foster and help people grow, you know. So this is still a thing? Yep, unfortunately, yeah. And like, this is the sad thing as well. And like, you know, we respect men like yourselves and my partner and they're, they're allies. But the saddest thing for me is seeing men who don't realize that it's that bad for us. You know, like my, my partner said to me, he was like, I didn't realize how bad it was for women until I listened to you guys talk, you know, which is sad because people like him respect women naturally. So when they hear of guys being assholes, they're like, I can't believe this happens in the world. At the American bar when I was there was a very, very male heavy. But one of the reasons was that we really, literally did not receive any applications from women. But then what I've realized is that sometimes the system, and I'm not just singling out the American bar. This is one of the experiences I had because it happened more or less everywhere. But you see that the expectations for a woman they're higher. So, you know, oh, she can't work in the bar because she doesn't know how to do this, this and that. But then you've got a guy who's in the same position. It's like, oh, he's very talented. Don't worry, he's going to learn. So that, that's the way I saw that. But I've also seen that over the last five years, there's been a huge progress in that specific direction, meaning that women are given the, the yeah. opportunity the same way as a man is. And I think Pippa, I don't know if you know Pippa Guy. Yeah. That was yeah. She's a great example. Natalie was a great example yeah. of, of that specific fact to keep it within the old man family. But... I just, I was not aware of the fact that you still have people that go around and... Yeah, it's a sad reality. Um, and we're, we're fortunate in Hong Kong, we don't really experience it. And we we have great bars, uh, you know, like the Pontiac led by Beckerly Franks, um, that is currently an all-female team and has predominantly been all-female. Um, and I think that really changed the perspective of a lot of people. And, you know, and maybe other bars out there look at bars like the Pontiac and think, oh, okay, like it works when you have an all-female team. Because, you know, I'm a woman, we are passionate, we do, we, you know, we do not care sometimes, but that's because we're passionate and we care. You know, I think some people from the outside think, oh, wow, all-female team, they must argue all the time. But we argue usually out of love most of the time. When mm. women, like, bitch about each other, it's because we love each other and we, you know, we want to see each other doing well and lift each other up. Now we have Roberta from Martini to talk about burnout and taking care of yourself. What is it that you've identified as opportunities for you as a brand uh, to support the bars and uh, what sort of procedures or projects have you put into place for that? Um, I think uh, at the moment, if I need to think of uh, a project that I'm proud of, is definitely Martini Racing Ciclismo. And uh, everything started in 2017. It was a BCB again. It just seems to be like it's my center point. Then I was running a cafeterino. It was really busy. It was great. And then I had a speech on uh, on the stage, and it was good. I was feeling okay. And then a person, Ian Bell, and he's the from Bartender's Manifesto. He came to myself, and he was like, "Oh, you look terrible." Oh, <laughs> thank you. Really? Yeah, it awesome. was. <laughs> it was a great start because it actually it showed me that I was almost burned out because I, I've been in a position at the point for one year and I was constantly working and traveling and without resting, without exercising because I didn't feel there was time to do it. Mm-hmm. So I reached the point that I was okay. I can't do more. I can't deliver. And then thanks to thankful to him, I realized then I need to slow down. I need to take the time to exercise. So from the f- for the following three weeks, he was sending messages like, are you exercising? Are you eating? These are the vitamins that you need to take. This is the schedule that you need to follow. This is the app that you need to use for meditation. And for me, make a really big change. And because I've been gifted with this kind of revelation that mm-hmm. you need to find a balance in your life, I was pushed to do the same for, for the bartender. So today with the Martini Racing Ciclismo, we're trying to uh, bring bartenders together to exercise uh, cycling uh, from indoor uh, uh, cycling class to outdoor rides it's just a um, way to tell bartenders take your time make sure that you take the time for things that are important in your life like yourself if you want to take care of the others you need to take care of yourself first finally we have nico de soto talking about naming his bar so let's talk a little bit about maze what was the concept behind it and uh, how did you go about opening it so the concept, the concept originally, I wanted to do something with travels, you know, like to bring flavors from uh, from all the food uh, I have, because that's a bit how I build my drink, you know, with taste and flavor that I meet uh, when I when I travel. Um, but 
for Greg, my business partner who owns Cocktail Kingdom as well, you know mm-hmm. Greg. Yeah. Um, he was like, oh no, let's do something not as complicated. So we were like, why not doing spices? You know, because spice is very easy to understand for everyone. People cook, and it's uh, basically you pretty much have it in all the drinks. So we decided to do that. Uh, then we had to find a name. Me, I wanted a spice name. Uh, Clove was my favorite, to be honest, but you have already Clover Club. Yeah. You have Clove Club. Yeah. So it, it was like two used, and, and we wanted something that's easy to understand and remember as well. So short. Uh, and Mace, I think, was a, was a good fit. Yeah. Except for the fact that I didn't know that it was as well as Paper Spray. Oh, really? <laughs> and a medieval weapon, you know, with the, <laughs> with the chain and the ball. Yes, so, yeah. <laughs> so some people who don't know, because Mace is not the most famous <laughs> spice. But what, what kind of bar is that? Like, this stupid what name. Like, what <laughs> <laughs> and good. how did that go? Good, 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 good. Well received, you know. Like uh, after opening, uh, we 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 enter the 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 fifty best. We were nominated at Tales for for world best menu. We won most creative cocktail list uh, time out awards. So a lot of stuff here and there that uh, that gave us recognition. We hope you enjoyed listening to this special episode of the Unjiggered podcast. We are Unjiggered underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal account at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.